Amber, what are you drinking today? I am drinking Svedka Strawberry Lemonade Vodka mixed with a watermelon sugar-free powder mix drink. That sounds like quite the concoction. It always is. Yeah, I don't expect anything else from you. You shouldn't. <laughs> what are you, what are you drinking, Amanda? Uh, today I am drinking Svetka Ginger Lime Vodka with ginger beer. You and your ginger beer. Ginger is delicious. I've Ooh. never had ginger beer, so it's a little bit broaden my horizons. It's a little bit spicy. Mm-hmm. I like spice. Yeah, you'd actually probably really like it because it's it's kind of like a tart spice. It's not like a pepper spice, but it's like a tart spice. It's good. You don't get a lot of that sweetness from like a juice or a sugar. We're gonna. I'm gonna have to try it. Yeah, it's good. One day, one day we'll be together recording our podcast, and we can make each other's drinks. Yes, when we're not in COVID. Yes, of course. <laughs> so, welcome to this week's episode of Veterans Drinking Vodka. We believe that every veteran has a story to tell, and we are here to tell it. We have found that being a service member is easy, but being a veteran and navigating being a veteran can be very hard. In this episode, we are talking to Lakeisha Bienemy. She served in the United States Navy from 1996 to 2016 as an AG. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. You could say it. How are you today, Lakeisha? I am doing fabulous. What are you drinking? I am drinking rain vodka with some Welcher's pineapple orange juice in my birthday glass. That almost sounds like a pog from Hawaii. It surely could be. Yeah, you're just missing the guava. Cheers to everyone drinking vodka today. Cheers Cheers. to everyone drinking vodka. Keisha, can you tell us how your journey started and, uh, and where you're from? I am originally from... Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, born and raised. My journey into the Navy started well before I came along. I'm third generation Navy. My grandpa was a broiler tech and my dad was a seaman. May have been a third class perhaps, Um, but I come from a long line of Navy people. Even uh, my brother, one of my brothers was in Navy also. Um, So we are Navy deep in our family. Absolutely. That is where my story began. So you you just kind of explained to us why you joined the Navy. You'd probably be frowned upon had you joined a different branch. Why did you choose AG? Uh, so one of the, I would say one of the deals that my mom said for if I was going to go into military and she wasn't opposed to it, but she asked that if I go in to have, um, pick a job, that I would be able to have employment when I finally got out. And so I loved science. I really wanted to be like, you know, somebody scientist, but uh, I didn't want for my mom to have to like, you know, put her house up to put me through college. So I said, eh, I'll let the Navy pay for it. And so that was one of the jobs that was available. And you gotta remember back in 96, they had really minimum jobs that they had available for Black people that came in. Um, typically during that time frame, Black people really only had a choice between being a cook, being a bolster's mate, and it was one other job, a storekeeper. There wasn't a lot of jobs that were available. Um, it, was, it wasn't until like the late 80s 
that they started opening up jobs for what they would call black uppers, which were black people who were able to score higher than a 50 on their ASVAB. And so I was one of the people that, that had scored high enough. AG was available to me, but at the time frame, they needed more people to be airmen. So I had to come in as an airman and I had to strike, which is basically, you know, test and work towards being an AG. That was the deal that I had made with my mom that I would not go into the military and get just like a job doing like torpedoes when I know that I probably wouldn't be able to get a job like outside of the military if I didn't stay in for 20. So that's why I ended up picking AG to honor my mom's request to have a, a decent type of uh, trait when I got out of the military. So in 1996, I was 10. Sorry if that makes you feel old. No. But I, <laughs> it's just interesting. Like I extra excited about you being here to be able to share your story and everything with us because I didn't know that there were specific jobs for, yeah. for black was, yes. people in the military. Mm-hmm. Like I, I had no idea that that well, yeah. was You thing. wouldn't have. I mean, you wouldn't have just based on the demographic that you live under. And um, it doesn't mean that, you know, a lot of people were, you know, a lot of people don't know that a lot of people, because they really didn't have to experience it. So my very first that I shipped that I was on, I was on the Nimitz, uh, was my very first duty station. I was one of the second wave of women that populated the Nimitz when they transferred from, you know, most of your big depths carriers were all, you know, men. And so when they started integrating, I was, I guess if you want to call it lucky enough, I was lucky enough to be, you know, one of the second wave of women that were assigned to that ship. So uh, in the areographer rating, it literally, it was very, very white dominant. When I got in, you had to literally, in order for you to get into the job, you had to do like almost 90 hours of of your off time to qualify just for them to basically say, oh, hey, you know, you want to be in this job, then um, you had to do a lot of extra work. So they've come a long way when it comes to recruiting and things like that. But that's what it was. You had to specifically, if you wanted to be in a job specific, you had to have certain demographics. And that's what it was. And the only reason why I knew that was because um, the guy who recruited me was a friend of the family. And so he had to coach me and said, I stayed, I was in the delayed entry program for almost a year because I, I obviously I was underage. I was 17. And so he had to coach me along. He said, listen, if you want this job, you have to qualify underneath these parameters. And he was like, if you don't qualify on the parameters, you're not even going to be offered opportunity. They're going to give you what they want you to have. You don't get a chance. So the only other the only other job at that time frame that allowed just about anybody in was the nuclear field. And so if you scored 79 percent or better, you didn't even get another option. You were given you they were sent you to nuclear. They yeah. gave you nuclear. No one wants to be a nuke. <laughs> It is no very hard. It's very, very hard. Yeah. But they knew. Like they get they special knew. pay just for being a yes. nuclear field. So yes. I want to do, I want to cheers. Like not only did you join the military and the Navy as a person of color, but you joined the military and the Navy as a woman. 
And that is, that is a huge, that is a huge cheers. Cheers. Cheers to you, ma'am. Cheers to you. And the other thing too is you joined at a time when a lot of change was coming. Yes. So you kind of got to experience from like when you joined through to 2016 where things are so different. Completely different. I mean, they would have to have been. Yeah. Yeah. I remember my first, like, when I said I was stationed on the Nimitz, uh, my first appointment was in 96. I got in there, uh, let's see, I got there in like October ish timeframe and we were deployed by like that February. But I remember we were in the um, Red Sea and I think we were trying to do turnover because that's where, you know, um, during our, our uh, passing. And so we had went round the horn and uh, i remember passing by the u.s the shitty kitty is it, can i curse on here yeah so that's what we used to call it and i remember looking across the the you know the sea and i saw like like a bunch of guys walking around with no shirts on and i'm like oh my gosh like they're naked you know <laughs> You know, so as like, it was, it was so interesting because as, you know, a young lady, because the time frame I was 18 and uh, I remember even in boot camp, going through boot camp, and this was, that was like my first time really like being, had like white friends that were in my class, but to actually have to live with, you know, just all these different people. And I remember asking, it was like one of the girls, she was curling her hair, it was like, girl, and I was like, is your hair going to melt off? If you use those flat iron, like the curling eyes, just like, no, it's not gonna. I was like, well, my doll hair melts off, you know? <laughs> you know, so that's really this, interesting yeah. because I had some of the same experiences, but the other way where I never knew that people put weaves and tracks in their hair. That's how they got that, like, long, gorgeous hair. Like, I never knew that yeah. until I went no. to I didn't. I mean, I didn't either. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was I, a culture I, shock for me to go yeah. into boot camp because I yeah. grew up in a community where it was primarily the demographic of white and Hispanic. Now, and you know, so, it's so interesting, Amanda, that you say that because when I came in in 96, all women had to cut their hair. You could not come in. They couldn't have weaves. You couldn't have perms, girl. I ran around looking like a damn fuzzy tennis ball. Yeah, even when I came in, we had to cut our hair. And Same as me. I I came in after you, Amanda. Same as me. They had us cutting our hair. I don't think they have to now. I know that when I was in, and I went in in 2004, and I got to a school in Pensacola in the beginning of 2005, and all the Marine females had they knew the sock bun mm-hmm. i didn't know that i still had I didn't know about the sock bun either someone had to teach it to me right same mm-hmm. as me because they let the female marines keep their hair long where the yeah. female navy sailors we they were cut cutting hair yep yeah. they cut it off and so i had Isn't to learn amazing. the sock bun way yeah, after we all looked like a hot mess in boot camp because yes. we yeah. had so much has changed <laughs> yeah so much has changed i i you know i was um like you say just in the time span i remember i had took leave after deployment um went home and i remember i had got like you know fake nails and I came back and it was like during that time frame like you said Amanda when I when I was in it was where 
because they were letting in, obviously African-Americans and, and other people of color, other people of ethnicities were coming in, but the regulations were always written with Caucasian in mind. So, right. you know, when they talked about the hair, it was always like, well, yeah, I ain't got straight blonde hair. Okay, so, you know, what, what color was blended for your skin was not blended for mine. And so I remember I had like red nail polish or something like that. Well, let's be real. When you've got, you know, fair skin, red nail polish looks like you a hooker. But if you yeah, have somebody hair out. out bright, but if you have somebody who is darker skin, that red doesn't pop as much, honey, that it looks right, like it's really nice. And so the same thing with hair, I remember, you know, my evals were always affected because they felt like, you know, my choice in you know, nail color and how, you know, we couldn't have uh, braids in your hair. It was like, oh, you can't have this. You can't have that. And a lot of people, especially like guys who, who were able to cut their hair short, but you know, it was like, if you didn't have an Afro, it had to be like close crop. So it wasn't no edge up or nothing like that. And so a lot of people of color, people of different ethnicities that didn't have like straight hair, that were really affected in their evaluations based on uh, against the regulation that was never written with them included. And so very, very interesting on how regulations have changed over the years and, and, uh, and how the Navy has had to evolve um, to be more inclusive. So that, watching that over time is, you know, it's spectacular. I mean, I could look back at it and be like, dang, why that shit wasn't there when I was in. But, you know, to see the progress that the military is making is, is amazing. And that they're open and willing to learn and try and kind mm-hmm. of see what works and yeah like yes like now since we since i've retired and since you've been um out of military you know we couldn't have locks we couldn't have um, dreaded hair and now the military has a, a complete and utter regulation about how i'm like if i you know that's one of the ones like i didn't have to get my damn hair with the creamy crack all those damn years i could have just locked my hair up um and then it, it would have been down to my behind and i could have a sock bun you know yeah. Yeah. My what about um no were there no shave chits back then? Yeah, they did. Or- um yeah, they did. And that that was the thing. Like, and that is still that right there, I think that's one of the points of contention that I saw in my full 20 years of being in the military is and it, it's the military is very known to when they find a blemish, they tend to want to pick with the blemish until they can discharge the blemish if that makes sense. So uh, if you, cheers, yeah. cheers to that. <laughs> I hate cheers to something like that, but it's true. But it's the truth. Yes. You know, the, the military has always, yes, that's what the military has always been known to do that. So if you're, if you're something that looks a little bit of, against the grain and that, like I said, the point of contention, I'll go back to what I was saying is that with the no shape chip, you know, there's one of the reasons why a lot of the brothers and African-American dudes have, you know, problems because they're, they don't have straight beards. Their beards don't grow like Santa Claus. So, you know, they have that curly hair. And one of the things I used to see all the time, and it used to grate my nerves, is that whenever you had, like I said, the military regulations for grooming standards were never written for ethnic in mind. So, you know, all the Black people, Black men that shaved, and they would get these razor bumps, you know, it was like, oh, 
you know, you just don't, you, you know, you just don't want to shave. And that's why there's people forcing like, where's your shave shit? You know, if it's not on your person, you know, and it's like, you know, and that goes back to when they saw anything that was a blemish in military is like, oh, it's bringing discredit upon our military in which we've worked so hard to patriotly serve. And we must get rid of this blemish. And, you know, something as simple as a no shave chip where, you know, it's like, oh, if it expired and it's like, well, I couldn't go back because I was on watch, <laughs> you know, and then now it's, you know, bad evals, then it um, capped this mask and all this. And then all of it is, is that we just don't want to have to change or deal with whatever it is that you're bringing. So instead of us cultivating or learning or even trying to evolve, we'd rather just get rid of you by sacrificing all of our time to understand you. And so oftentimes that's one of the things that I saw most in the military that was very cumbersome and bothersome. I would hope that in the 20 years that you were in though, that that changed, maybe not completely, but there was Mm -hmm. a lot more. I mean, especially now with there's not the don't ask, don't tell policy. So I would hope that some of those blemishes were not eradicated for <laughs> right. towards 2016 versus yeah. 1996. Yeah. Like I, you know, it's interesting because uh, one of the things that I noticed when I retired, so huge thing uh, that I noticed is one, there's a whole rank of retired people, like, and retired people welcome other retired people into their ranks. And it's interesting because there's a different kind of sentiment that comes with being a veteran and being a retired veteran. So obviously when you meet another veteran, you're like, great, you know, it's so good to see you. When you meet another retired person, it's so interesting because the direction of what you're speaking about completely changes. So case in point, you know, you meet another uh, veteran and the first thing they're saying is, hey, have you, you know, do you have a disability rating? And it's like, disability rating? What? You don't have a disability rating? Um, I need to get you in with somebody else who has somebody else who has somebody else. And this person's retired and this person's retired. And it's so funny. So once you hear that another person is retiring, like other retired people will go there to the retirement ceremony to welcome that military person into the retired ranks. And so it's, it's very it's interesting. Like you said, you know, my husband, um, he discharged. And it's so interesting because we could still be in the same room. And, the you know, people ask that question like, hey, you know, did you just get out? Did you, you know, retire? And he's like, oh, you know, I got out at, you know, it's a 10-year mark. That's like, oh, okay, you know. And then it's like, hey, did you, you know, did you just discharge? It's like, no, I retired. Oh, you retired. And then it's like, you know, the conversation goes on over to, you know, the retired person. So I can see, and I, you know, I bring it up and I bring it back to what your question was, is that has some of those nuances, has it been eradicated? And to a degree, I would say that it has not been eradicated, but more, it's become more sophisticated. So no longer can you directly attack someone because of their race, creed, color, and all that. You can't directly attack them. But what you can do is nitpick characteristics about them. You can nitpick traits that you don't like. Case in point, this was Right before I retired, I was on my I was on my last deployment and I went to a DDG and I felt so bad. So I 
So when I, I had, I left my community, I just, I could, I ain't had no choice. I had to go back to be an AG because my detail was like, hey, my AGs need to be out to see. You know what? Roger that. I got 17 years in. What the hell are you going to do? You know, as long as I show up, show up in my uniform and I'm on time, you can't do nothing to me. That's one thing I, I always say, learn, learn the rules. Because one of my good friends who was an air traffic controller told me that you have to learn the rules first so that you know if you're bending them or breaking them. And she I just really- who would have told you that? Yes. Uh-huh, right. And so she just went there, solidified and confirmed what I already knew. And I said, thank you, dear Lord, that you gave me an angel to say it's okay to be the a-hole that you are. And so I was on my last appointment. And so I had came, I had 17 years in. I said, listen, I went to my chief's mess. By this time frame, you know, I didn't, I didn't been through too much. I ain't had time for you to consider me a blemish. I didn't have time for you to consider anything. I didn't care because at that point in time frame, I realized that it's my life. And so I told the chief's mess, I say, hey, listen, you better get me on the first thing smoking out of here underway because I'm about to have a baby. So either you can get some work out of me, at least the deployment, or I'm just going to be a plan lost. I was like, because you got me on something that has me deploying and I'm, I'm going to be retiring. And so they was like, oh, you know, it's all mad at me because, like I said, I don't think or I should say I, I don't believe that the nuances of injustice has disappeared. I think it's become sophisticated. And so with that being said, you know, instead of them just come out saying, hey, you know, I don't like the fact that you telling me that you're planning on getting pregnant you know, and respecting the fact that I'm saying, hey, this is what I, I, I have a right to do this. You know what I'm saying? So before I go do this, I'm going to give you a win-win situation. I'll do a deployment. When I get back, I'm having my baby and I'm going to retire. And so, so what they did was they found, you know, a kid instead of giving, you know, instead of giving me an individual that was extremely knowledgeable, they gave me like their, their bastard kid, right? But they didn't know me well. I love the kids that are bastards because now I, I was going to say, those are your kind of people. They are my kind of people. And so, you know, and what they, they felt that they would do was they would give me this problem child thinking that this problem child would give me a problem in itself. And so, you know, thinking that I was, you know, I'm not one of those people that sell people up the river. And so kid ended up being a fantastic guy. He had, you know, he had a tour at the Pentagon but he was an a-hole. And, you know, me and him, we had a conversation. And so, you know, this guy, he was like the kind of kid that when it came to his advancement, he literally drew a Christmas tree of bubbled answers. (laughs) (laughs) Cheers to drawing a Christmas tree on advancement exam. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Cheers. When in doubt, see your way out. Yes. And so when this guy, yes. And so when the kid literally failed the exam, you know, they hit me up because at this point time frame, we're not we're not one blemish. Me and this kid are two blemishes. You get what I'm right. saying? We are we are a whole pimple to the Navy right now. And they are looking to, you know, clear us out. And they hit me up and they, you know, gave me the nastiest email ever, nastiest, nasty gram I could ever receive. And I I I said, okay. And I hit him back. And I, you know, I, I was like, hey, you know, this kid don't want to stay in. You know, stop emailing me. I'm not about to sit up there and shove Navy down his throat. He don't want to be in the Navy. Leave him the hell alone. Of course, I said it very uh, eloquently. 
very eloquently. And there was nothing that they could do. I was like, I'm not doing all this stuff. I'm not jumping through these hoops. And so I told him, I said, the best thing I can do for you is not embarrass you out here. So if you don't want me to do that, you can stop harassing me. You can stop harassing my guy. And so, you know, we did our deployment. They had nothing out of us, you know, but I, I learned that game. So like I said, back to your question that you stated is, I don't think that it's been eradicated. I, I believe that it has become very, very sophisticated. And that if you're, if you have not been raised up in the Navy or the military in itself, where you were able to see where they came from. If you came in, you would think, oh, no, 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 you know, there's nothing there. But no, it's very, very covert on how it's done and how just with people who that, uh, how they do it now, a lot of times frame is they sponge, you know, their whole entire crew through mental illness. And that is one of the newest ways that they're able to basically strip their fleet of people that they feel blemishes and it's un- it's unfortunate you know they do you know being on the other side they do give them an opportunity to seek treatment but they're that's like the three strikes you're out kind of thing you get a couple of instances where blow your top and it's like oh you went to anger management once you can go again and you know you blew up on a commander time for you to go you know you know so that that's that's my belief that's you know what i've seen over the the years that was in. I was going to say that's fantastic insight on that, that it's something that Amber and I don't have insight on and we haven't really had the opportunity to have that insight. I mean, and, and Rob, being a, being a female in the military, no matter what branch you're in is a challenge in itself, but to be anything other than white in the military. So to take a non-white, non-male person and stick you in the military, it's really interesting to, I'm open-minded to be able to see stuff and recognize stuff and respect things, but not really ever having to be completely subjected to it. I mean, but as, as females, and we didn't talk about this with Jen as much, a little bit, Mm -hmm. but as a female in the military, you're already, even in 2020, you're already less than because you're a female. Yes, absolutely. Even it's so, it's so funny because I have another good friend, me and her, we were in a school together we were both fleet returnees, so we were third classes. Good friend, she, when we met, we were very rough. She was an MM3, and I had rated, you know, already, yes. So, yes, and her motto that the guys would say to her is, like, no tits in the pit. And she, when you meet her to this day, like, she is a bulldog. When I say she takes no crap from nobody. And me and her, we clicked immediately because we knew how hard it was. And she was, she's Caucasian, came from, from Texas. And so- Hey, cheers know, she, to Texas. Yes. Cheers <laughs> to Texas. Sorry, but we're cheers to Texas. I'm originally from New York, but I live in Texas and we're cheers yeah. in Texas. Yes. And so, you know, love her, you know, to death. She, she actually was the officer that came to my retirement ceremony to send me ashore. And so, but, you know, we were both the third classes and she had a lot of the same struggles. She, you know, she came in, she rated as an AG. She worked her ranks up to be a chief, then moved on over to the officer rank. 
And I mean, we was like close, like she found out she made chief because I called her up and she was sleeping from watching. I was like, hey, bitch, get up. You know, you just made chief. Like, what the hell are you doing? Um, and she was in a, uh, she was in a totally, I think she was at the time period she was working at Camp David. And, and so her story is a little different because even though we were the same and I went to, you know, I went to C school before her, you know, I had got sight wave, but in, as I said, in that particular rating, even though she was a female, she was still given preference over because she was white and and she was a cute white girl too so you can't put that past because no, you that can goes have far. yeah it goes very very far cute white women always got office jobs she it was like oh yeah you know they wanted me to come and be an admin i'm sure they did I, I, i'm <laughs> definitely sure that they did or oh yeah you know uh, uh so you had dan and and coming in i remember so in 96 I, like i said i came in 96 i rated as an ag in 98 so in norfolk so back then you had black hubs is what we used to call them norfolk was a hub it was where mostly all the black people were the other hub it was japan because all the black people would go over to japan because you was in a foreign country and so if you had if you had a choice between foreign or your own, you would pick your own. So when you went overseas and you lived overseas, black people had a little bit more of, of even ground equality over there because, hey, what you gonna do? Promote a Japanese person? You know what I'm saying? They're not even in the military. Yeah, so the ranking fight was between the Caucasian people, the black people, and the damn Filipinos. And nobody wanted the Filipinos to get far because they they took over everything so it was like everybody was on a on and so how it was it was like you had because when the filipinos came into the ring they also were fighting as as they as black people were fighting for rank and so they had to work even harder because black people were in the military a little bit longer than filipinos and so they knew the game a little bit better even with that filipinos still was given a much more fair shake than the black people the African Americans. So with that being said, um, like I said, in 98, there was, you know, it was a hub. You had certain the groups and, you know, where you had black people in, in Norfolk, where I was stationed, literally, they had all the black people. Every last one of the black people was like, they was on like, uh, uh, so in Norfolk, you had, so like the tower, Amanda, you would know, they were all, they put all the, all the black people at the air, air uh, aircraft towers. So they would be working underneath with the with the ACs. And then you had all the pretty white women, all the white men, and then you had your token blacks that they knew that they could take them to the golf course. They knew that they could take them out for a beer and they would act decent. And so you had your token blacks that stayed over at the at the centers where dignitaries would come. And so um, we knew that. You know, we was like, okay. And so we, you know, we worked. So it's very interesting to see how they they had to kind of break that up. Because it was like, hey, we understood where it was. So just like you say, even as a female, there were still issues, even with white females, you know, trying to make sure that they could get the rank 
that they felt like they deserved. And it was, there was always, as a female, like you said, coming into the military, you already have a strike against you because you're already trying to prove yourself as being worthy of merit, off of merit. But then on top of that, you had to deal with, like you said, for yourself, where you had that young, pretty white girl that got the little Coca-Cola bottle figure, and then you got the front of your chief khaki who's looking like, well, hell, I, I've been trying to eyeball this pole for a while to get me a better eval, and here you come, and then he ain't paying me no attention. So you had those little inner disturbances that dictate how you're going to move because at the end of the day it's a job and you make more money if you get better evals or you get better opportunity so it's very interesting how things have evolved now for a lot more equality but also with that you have to work a little bit harder to make sure that people see you as an equal absolutely and this is a topic that we could talk about forever. Ever. <laughs> There's so much to say, but we're going to keep going here. And do you, we're going to lighten the mood just a little bit. Do you have a fun sea story because she's Navy. So we can use sea story. We can yeah. use sea story. You don't have to ask. I know we don't have to try to figure out what that branch is version of a sea story <laughs> is. So do you have a great sea story that you can tell us today? Oh, I have so many. Okay. Okay, so uh, is it? Uh, let me ask you first. Is this the funny only Navy can understand sea store, or funny like everybody can understand sea store? Whatever you want, go either way you want. Ah, uh, okay. So I remember this was. This goes back to one of my uh, first deployments, and the Nimitz. The Nimitz. At, you were with the Nimitz. Yes, I was with the Nimitz. At the time frame, the Nimitz was the first nuclear carrier to pull into Japan after they had bombed them, right? Hiroshima, right? And so, so now I'm 19. This is already going to be a great story. Yes. So I'm 19 and at the time frame, and we're pulling in, and like, yo, it was so many on Japanese people on the pier pit. Like, they were rioting us, right? <laughs> and so they had told us beforehand, because you know how they give you the briefs, like, hey, you know, we're coming in. Man, these Japanese people, they had blew up signs, like, babies, that was all destroyed. We was like, oh, shit, like, damn, they finna destroy us, right? Because we didn't understand that their protests were all peaceful. Like, so when we heard, like, Americans, we heard, oh, they protested us. We was thinking we was going to get, like, damn rockets thrown at us. And, you know, people's going, we get to the pier. It was a bunch of people that all were, like, under three foot tall. They were four foot tall. They was, like, they all looked like ants with signs. And you heard, and it was like, right? And so we were like, oh. But the funniest shit was that they gave us the time frame that they were going to protest like from this hour to this hour, right? When we got off the ship, it was like they funneled us through like this whole weave of like little ants. And so they funneled us through, we get out there. Let me tell you, this was a full carrier. We had, they unleashed 5,000 Americans on this little town of Yakuska, right? <laughs> we was everywhere. We was everywhere. We cleared off their shells. Like, I think half of the crew was drunk. 
and the dog going the little it was it's like a little club that was there and so what i thought was the funniest crap ever was that not only did they infiltrate all like the the ship just ransacked this whole entire town right i have i ended up like seeing people who was like drunk at the train station piled back on so what I say is funny is because as I went back and then I see that still to this day, you know, you had like these drunk sailors and you see all the, you know, all little signs and stuff, but we just toured this town. And I don't, I think after that, they definitely didn't have another carrier come in there for like at least another three or four years after we just literally destroyed that poor little town. And just literally, I felt bad. It was like we just ran through that town. But we, I had like some of the funnest time frames there just going through and seeing just how weird and different it was to see like the McDonald's, like they, you know, they had like rice burgers. I was like, what the hell is that? So that, I think that's why my funniest is a sea story is because it was my first time frame stepping foot like on foreign soil and seeing how Americans really just fuck shit up when they go <laughs> somewhere. I'm going to so go that, to Japan. Japan is on my bucket list. I'm going to, every brilliant. person that I have talked to that's been in the military that has been to Japan, like I want to go to Japan just go. so, so bad. They are fun people. Oh my gosh. They are fun people. Yeah. They like to laugh and they, they drink and smoke. Oh, Oh, cheers mm. to drinking and smoking with the Japanese. Heck yeah. yeah. That's a relationship that's gotten more progressive and more sophisticated as well. Yeah, yes. absolutely. From where we were mm-hmm. even 50 oh, years yeah. ago. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's mm-hmm. amazing how those relationships can heal. Yes, yes. Especially now. You yeah. know how many mixed Japanese kids is out there? <laughs> <laughs> Probably as many as there are Korean. <laughs> yes. Maybe fucking. Oh, man. So we all have had a great time on active duty and we have a million stories to tell, but eventually we all have to transition and leave that comfort zone that we've gotten so used to in the navy or any branch and it is comforting it is especially um i think keisha's our first person that's retired from the military she is has has operated prior to their retirement mark so you're our first so you've had a a 20 year comfort zone Mm -hmm. that yes so that was your way of life for a long long time so when yeah, all of my younger mm-hmm. came to your transition. How was that? Oh, okay. So uh, first and foremost, I'll tell you that the transition becomes exponentially harder when you have a family. And especially when you have a family that has become very accustomed to that lifestyle. So, you know, when I knew that I was going to retire, like one of the things was that um, my husband, first thing he said was, how are we going to live? Because that drop from active duty pay to a retirement pay, you're getting maybe a quarter 
of what it was that you were going to get. And so a lot of people tend to think that, oh, you're retired, you can get all kinds of money. So I went from, you know, E6 in the Navy with 20, um, 20 years, I actually ended up retiring, I think I had like 21. And so I went from, you know, getting $6,000 a month, which to like 15, $1,600. I was like, oh my God, like, what the fuck is that? It's a difference. It's a huge difference. Um, also, the other thing is the preparation. Like, the biggest thing was was mental. I see a lot of people who don't want to actually retire and they make it, it's just like this hard transition, but it was the drop because I knew that I was going to be retiring soon. I accepted it. The preparation was a little bit better, but it didn't, it didn't negate the stressors that came with it, knowing that I still had a mortgage that I needed to pay and I was only going to be getting $1,600 and my mortgage was fucking $1,800. And I was like, shit, I'm going to have to be a Walmart greeter. I'm going to do something, you know, saying to get some money. I also had a one-year-old. If I was only getting $1,600 from my retirement, shit, half of that, if I put her in doggone daycare, was going to get ate up. So that stress mounted um, really quickly. Uh, so then, then, you know, at the time frame with my husband, who at that time frame, once he'd already been a military spouse for like seven years, he'd already traveled. He didn't have a job because he had just gotten to Virginia. So I was looking at my husband who had no work. I was about to basically, people say retire. Retire is a fancy way to say no unemployed. Let's be real. When you're not, when you're not 65, it's a fancy word to say you ain't got no goddamn money coming in. And so now, like I said, people who, like I said, it's a little bit different. When you have retired, the retired community comes out and help you transition. And I don't see it as much when you have people who just discharge. So I had a lot of people when they knew I was other retired people, they jumped on and was like, bitch, what you doing? You better get, did you get your disability? Did you put the paperwork in? You know, um, did you get your house? And so I had people because retired people, they help each other. It's just that simple. So before I had, you know, I had spoke with another person that had retired. They got, they were E5 that retired underneath. They were grandfathered in and they went to go get a house after they retired. And the bank was like, um, you ain't got no more money coming in. And so, you know, he's like, well, I'm retired. It was like, that's nice. But so I learned from other retired people. They said, get your house before you retire, before you get out, get your house, because now you don't have to prove that you have income. And then now that you've actually retired and you lose your income, you already have a house. So those were some of those things that I did um, that helped me reduce stress, you know, but, and then, but even then after I actually retired and I, I was in my house and I had, you know, some savings, that shit wasn't enough. It vaporized. And so then the stress came because it was like, now how am I going to pay my bills? And so then I was I'm like, oh, please, Lord Jesus, please give me some, some disability. <laughs> I need some more money. And so start looking for those other things. But in my case, you know, my husband ended up, you know, picking up employment. My disability came because retirees told me, hey, go do your benefits before you get out, before you retire. And so that helped you know, the stress. Um, once, but then it was, I think it was maybe about, Six or seven months after I was actually retired, 
And that I started having that feeling of what is my life coming to? You know, that like, what the hell am I going to do? Like it, it settles in that, you know, I don't have a job, you know, like where's my purpose? Why, you know, why am I waking up every day if I don't have anywhere to go? I don't have anything to do. And I still, I had a, at the time frame, I had a 15 month old, you know, of course you would think like you're taking care of your kid, but when you're in the military, you have a purpose, you have a job. Like, you know, even with AOs, you know, their motto was warheads on foreheads. You get what I'm saying? Like you, the military gives you a task. It gives you purpose on why you go to work every day. You're even able to see it. So when that's like stripped away, it's like, now what? So for me, that was a real gaping hole for me. And it was, I started kind of really second guessing, like, you know, what am I going to do with my life? And, you know, I felt like I was vegging out and, you know, looking at it and probably looking back, that was that portion of depression, you know, that kind of sets in when you're just like, you know, cause the military has you thinking that, you know, even on a good day, um, the military is like, well, if you ain't got no job, your next job is to try and get rank. So if you're not, if you ain't, if you ain't just got your rank, you should be working towards your rank. And so when you have that and you're sitting at home and you're looking for a job, like even it's like, get a job. He's like, but I'm putting applications. It's like, but they don't tell you how to write a damn resume. They tell you to go to, to, to TAPS and TAPS is like, yeah, you got to brag on yourself and you, know, you got to do this. And bitch, where the hell you at when I'm over here trying to write this resume that you're showing me? And they're like, yeah, you just kind of plug things in. There's nothing to plug. No, you that's know? not the way it works. <laughs> that's not the way it works. Resume and was the hardest thing I've ever had to write ever. in my life. And I am a writer. Yes. yes, it was difficult. I just, and I gave up. I was like, eh, whatever. And so until I started, I got with some more of the retirees. They was like, oh, they, and that's what they said. Oh, well, you know, you need to go talk to this person. And then, you know, it started opening up doors. And so that was, that was difficult. It was, you know, having to actually network. I know for myself, when I had started, a godsend was the fact that my husband, we both have a support network out here in um, where we're at in Virginia. And he, his uh, organization, he was a, he was a Mason. And I ended up, you know, becoming an Eastern star. And that network is what helped me transition most is because I was able to go back and do, you know, community service. Because even though people are in the military, they forget that the military is a service generated job. Your whole purpose is to serve other people. You're serving them their freedom. You're serving them their comforts to be able to say F the police, you know, you're giving them that freedom for the price of your life. And so a lot of military people to get out, even though they're like, oh, I don't like the military, but you still joined a service organization. And so when I got out, I retired, I didn't have that anymore. So I really struggled with having that purpose of I've been serving all of my life. And now you're telling me that I can't serve anymore. And I agreed to not serve anymore. But now what am I going to do? You know, that that was a huge hole that I had to learn how to fill. Exactly. So Mm -hmm. let me ask you this, because you have served both on the West Coast and the East Coast, but you're from Mm -hmm. the East Coast. 
we this is the this is the million dollar question of our podcast it is our secondary purpose which coast is the best coast oh man okay she's in the hot seat right now (laughs) i can give you i can give you a complete honest answer it really, I don't know if I should have my cheers ready or not. Yes, it really, Drum roll, really, please. it really, really, really depends on what kind of music you like. <laughs> I never thought of that. It really does. Oh, oh that was no. I disagree. I disagree. And I say that. I, I say that because okay. So living on both sides, right? So when I was in San Diego, right, I, the Here's reason why San, 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 San Diego, San Diego, cheers to San Diego, I cheer, okay, cheers to San Diego, right, but San Diego, San Diego was a great place to stay, you want to know why, because it stayed hot all the time, that means you never had to stay in a house, I got into so much trouble when I was in San Diego, because there was never a hibernation period. Yo, let me do this. I remember, (laughs) I remember this was, I tell you my first appointment was, my first ship was forever fun. Stationed in San Diego after um, we did the deployment, right? Oh, um, right before. Went to Tijuana, Mexico. Saw a girl. Tijuana. Yes. I went to TJ. Tia went to Tijuana. Right. I've been to Tijuana with both of you. Yes. <laughs> so when I'm with I'm with some friends. This uh this was Amanda. This was Trey, Eric, Kevin, and a couple oh, of other guys, right? That is where so you, you, talk, you know, Yes, right. I watched a girl get her ass drug from 50 fucking stairs up. This girl got her ass whooped from the front fucking door all the way to the basement. I watched it happen, drug the hell out of this chick, and I was excited to get into this club, only to find out <laughs> there was a bunch of pyro crips in there, just fuck shit up, right? And so I'm just like, yo, this is great. Why was I like that? Because this was back when Tupac and fucking, what's his name, uh, uh, E-40 and Too Short, because that was the music that I was listening to at the time. Frame. I love Too Short. I love Too Short. Passion. Too short, don't only say nothing about a bitch. And you just like, yeah. It's like, oh, yeah. So you up in there, you just the hardest shit on the block, right? Now, you go to, because why? It's hot all the time. Even in January, you could wear booty shorts and be with a jacket and be okay. You never have to fucking stay in a house. Go to the East Coast. That grind is different, man, because it's cold. You only get like maybe seven months out of the year. Because the shit is cold. Snow is on the ground. You can't wear no booty shorts. You got on a puffer jacket all the way to your fucking ankles. Like, <laughs> nobody is out. Your grind is different. Your music is different. It's hard. It's like, your sh- East Coast is struggle music. They're like, yeah, I'm out here pushing this dope. And you're like, because why? You only get seven months out of the year. <laughs> Fuck you. You only get seven months. <laughs> yes. It's cold. So, I, like I said, 
I think it's based on what music you listen to. If you like that hard shit that you just like, yeah, mother brother, am I here in the you like, you need to live on the East Coast because that grind is hard. But if you want to be laid back and you want to wear booty shorts and a little jacket, then you stay on the West Coast. I mean, I loved, I, I ain't gonna lie, I had a lot of fun in San Diego. Why? Because I don't like the fucking cold. Loved it. So if you ask me which was better, you like those booty shorts. <laughs> I like, yeah, because I got a big ass. So I gotta get I gotta get booty to look at me some kind of way. They ain't looking at me titties. So I got to booty shorts is what's gonna bring in. That's that's my milkshake that brings the boys to the yard, you know. So if you ask me, I would Cheers say to the milkshakes that bring the yes, boys to the yard. Cheers. Say, yes. For me, I will say I had a lot of fun on the West Coast because while the sun stays out all the time. Cheers. So for you, West the West Coast, Coast is the is best coast. coast. Yes. The yes. Coast is the best coast. Keisha, now that we've established that the West Coast is the best coast, do you have any advice for your fellow service members that are getting out of the service and becoming veterans or are continuing to struggle on their journey as a veteran? I will say two things. Get yourself, if, if you are a veteran that's struggling, to adjust. I strongly, strongly suggest to find organizations that suit your need, whether or not that's getting on board with Meals on Wheels, getting on board with, say, Wounded Veteran, um, Wounded Warriors Project, even volunteering for maybe like a local chapter that does, like right now I have on a, a National Kidney Foundation um, t-shirt. I, I volunteer all the time. It is the best way to open up doors to new people. And like I said, we... As veterans, we have dedicated ourselves to be in a service-oriented organization, and we give countless hours to serving our country. So a lot of time frames, veterans do not volunteer, and what it does is it strips them from the opportunity to fill that void of giving and serving. So somebody who's struggling, that is one of the first things I would say. It's the best way to build a support network, to fill the need of being able to help other people, and then helps to provide them with a new purpose, uh, which a lot of veterans are struggling with because you lose that sense of purpose. For the veterans that are about to get out, the number one thing I can say is before you retire, before you discharge, even if it ain't a place that you want to stay, you know, if you are trying to get a house, don't wait until you discharge. Don't wait until you get out unless you just get and kick the hell out and they just giving you a bus ticket. Then God damn it. It ain't shit you can do, but just, you know, recoil. But if you have time, you know, financially, you know, see if you can get into a home because that means you can secure a place to live and you're not renting where they can raise the rent and you know that you're about to lose your income. Um, that's another thing. Secondly, if you're retiring, obviously speak to other retired people. They do help out. The other thing is the thing that helped help most is the veterans affairs. Anybody who who has served should get their 
record review for benefits. And I say that because a lot of people are very prideful and they're like, oh, I don't want benefits. But you think of it as when you came into the Navy, you came into the military, you worked just fine. You were 100 percent. You got out in the military, they bust up your knees, bust up your back, bust up your arm, you know, and now you are looking for the Navy to compensate you for the youth that you gave them. Because when you come in at 18, you're giving them your youth. 20 years is your youth. And so um, take advantage of the benefits that are there for you. They're there to help. Um, and uh, they have a lot of great, great programs that can keep veterans um with a lot of the benefits and ways to stay afloat you know when they're transitioning so that's the best that i can give that's what helped me that is great advice if our listeners want to find you where can you be reached i man uh at the uh, karate dojo at <laughs> dance studio <laughs> <laughs> I spent all my time these days. Um, but no, I, I am on, uh, you can reach out to me through, what is it, Facebook? I'm actually on, even though I don't post much, um, but if you find me on Facebook, I'm actually under Lakeisha Wallace instead of um, Lakeisha B. Enemy. And um, if you reach out to me, um, I will always answer this, you know, acknowledge who you are. And I am always willing to give any information that I know about um, benefits, you know, different organizations that I've been a part of um, that I've helped out with. And, um, you know, an encouragement. I'm a pretty good encourager. It works with my kids. I'll tell you that much. (laughs) Hey, cheers to encouragement working on kids. Yeah. Cheers to being in your kids' minds. Oh, I love the mind. Fuck my kids. Oh, I love it. Oh, man. It's it's great amusement. (laughs) You know, you're a veteran when. (laughs) Yes. Yes. When you have your child in push-up position and you make them stay there and you tell them, get on a deck and they understand what get on a deck is. You know, absolutely. Yep. Amber, oh, yeah. do you want to talk about our charity that we're supporting this episode? Sure. So, um, similar to our previous episodes and moving forward, um, our charity of choice to support and promote is the Till Bahala Project. Um, they are super strong supporters in the 22 a day and the fact that 22 veterans kill themselves every day. I wear their bracelet. Um, And I know they have other merchandise that you can purchase and their funding or the the money that they make does go to um, bringing awareness to veteran suicide and any donations that we directly receive in support of the Tilvahala project does go directly to them. It is a great, great charity that they have going on and a great organization that they've developed to help support veterans. If you would like to contact Amber or I, we can be reached on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Veterans Drink and Vodka, or you can email us directly at veteransdrinkandvodka at gmail.com. Please, please reach out if you would like to tell your story and be a guest on our podcast. And like Amanda said, you can send us an email at veteransdrinkingvodka at gmail.com or DM us on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook.
If you like our podcast, subscribe. We can be found on Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn, Google Podcasts, or Amazon. Also, please leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. Good, bad, ugly, indifferent. It's what keeps us on the air. It's what keeps us going. And your feedback is important to us. 22 a day is 22 too many. One a day is too many. And you are never alone. Veterans drinking vodka. Cheers. Cheers.